G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday the 9th of January 2024 and our topics this week are shonky builders building shonky apartments building chunky buildings and the government has ordered a review into the bureau of meteorology's warning system of course we also have our two ticks town talk and the two ticks town talk this week is going to be one of these a little bit long ones um but i hope you'll enjoy it and of course we'll jump into this week in australian history with our deep and we will finish off as always with a forex bottle top question but before we get into all of that let's catch up What's happened this week? Uh, Dee, what's going on? Okay, DK, I've uh, been up to the, the usual usual gardening stuff, blah, blah, blah. But I also got myself a, a weather station for, uh, for Chrissy. We said to the family when they asked for Christmas suggestions, we said chucking some money for a weather station. And... Uh, so I literally just commissioned it today. I'd put I'd been reading the uh, instructions first. Uh, yes, one of those type of people, uh, and charging the the battery. And you're meant to you, like you. They give you a, a bracket to affix it to. Um, well, they've got it set up for for bricks or for mortar. And I thought, oh, I'll I'll put this like it sits on top of a a metal. Uh, tube a metal pipe and it's got two uh, c brackets that uh, you can use to attach it to the wall i thought oh, i thought oh, i know where i want to put it up sort of the top of the, the garage because we've got a flat roof there but it's not brick up there and i started looking and i was thinking oh i'll be drilling through flashing and not quite sure what's on the other end and so in the end i thought oh look i've got uh <laughs> four bags of cement that i'd bought ages ago that you would describe them now as rocks. So I thought I'll build a build a, a wooden frame just out of some um, you know, ninety by forty five, and uh, use that use one of the cement rocks just to to weigh it down on the roof. So if I if I need to move the thing um, and to avoid drilling through flashing and finding a surprise on the other side. So yeah, it's up and running. So we've got all the things with the wind speed and temperature and humidity, and now I'll be able to go into intricate details at home about <laughs> about what sort of the what the weather is. But look, it's something we've wanted for a while because our weather, um, uh, what do you call it, recording thing for the the Bureau of Meteorology is oh, it's probably about I don't know. 12k away or something which is pretty good it's not too, not too bad but there's always a little bit of a difference and um we thought oh, i'd be interesting to to know exactly what we're getting on the the block and it was a groovy thing to to do and we thought it'd be a good presence so yes i've been doing that that's that's been keeping me busy and also i had this dartboard i'd bought from aldi uh good old aldi yep center oh, yeah. Aisle, yeah. center aisle bargain uh that was a few months ago, I've been looking at it, so I finally built a little bit of a, a backing board and, and chalk and dart holder um, for underneath so you can throw it, at, and if you miss it, you're not going to be spiking into the wall. Uh, so, yeah, a <laughs> so couple, couple of projects. You, you're going to be a dart shark. You're going to go to the pub and 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> bet everyone a couple of dollars and you'll you'll beat them all. Uh, my uncle was a semi-professional dart player for a little oh, while, and yeah, and, and he became very very good at it. And it, and it's one of those things that if you ever play against someone that's very good, kind of doesn't matter what sport uh, or like if you've ever been you know uh, experienced getting completely uh, smashed by like a pool yeah. shark or something <laughs> like that. Um, it it kind of sucks. It's definitely not. Um, you know, they can swindle you out over a couple of dollars, and it's it's all good fun. But um, yeah. you know, a little bit of a stealth skill sometimes, which can be a bit of fun. So, oh, I'll keep the. So, what? How long did he? When when you said semi pro, oh, is that is, my, it a, is it a is it a like how much of a thing? I know you see it in. Uh, in in England, um, and yeah. they've got the the World Dart Championships, and that seems to be getting a little bit more um, exposure on on media. But what what was the story over here? Uh, very much the same. Just kind of uh, playing darts in pool clubs became a bit of a, a sort of a, a bit of a thing. Traveling around, going to competitions, and that kind of stuff. There's there's a lot of kind of smaller, obscure sort of sports that you don't really know about until you sort of hear someone does it. And then you find out there's this whole like subculture and all these people and all these, you know, organizations and things like that. And I'm, you know, you're sort of like, wait, a good friend of mine uh, many years ago used to be into bull riding. And that was a whole thing I had no idea about as well, where, uh, you know, big competitions, big money too. uh, And he was... Uh, going around doing all that stuff, he actually earned more money from bull riding than he did in his day job where he worked with me at the time. So, wow. um, <laughs> he would take you know days off unpaid because he would go and make a lot more money bull riding, but he didn't yeah. want to lose his regular day job sort of thing. So, um, it's just sort of one of those weird things. I don't know if he does still play play darts uh, and do the competitions and stuff like that. But uh, my my other uncle on my mum's side, he lives in New Zealand and he plays. Uh, competition bowling, which is like tempin bowling, uh, which oh, is right. again, okay, another yeah. really weird, obscure sort of thing. And uh, he's been all over the world with that. So huh. he obviously must be fairly good, or maybe he likes paying a lot of money to go to overseas competitions. Huh. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, not really sure. But um, well, but may- yeah, maybe. How, how old is he? Uh couldn't tell you, fifties right. something. Oh yeah, okay. Well, he might be at that time of his life. He thinks, oh, bugger it, yeah, bit of a social thing, and he's he's probably yeah competitive enough that he's going to get the enjoyment out of it. But you know, good excuses any to to travel. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah. Um, what about you? What have you been up to? Uh, not a lot. It's still school holidays here. It's very hot, and humid. We've had tons and tons of rain it's been ridiculous Ooh. uh we we sort of i'm always complaining about whether it's it's either not raining or it's raining too much <laughs> we don't seem to have <laughs> any in between um which is kind of frustrating because we're all kind of cooped up inside uh because in Queensland, we're not really well equipped for rainy days. We don't have a lot of rainy day stuff because it doesn't happen very often. So uh, we kind of get a little bit of cabin fever after a couple of days of being cooped up inside. So today it's been on and off showers, which has 
probably the most frustrating when it is kind of on and off showers just because you can't really plan around it. Uh, uh, and I was hoping... Uh, I set up, we have a small above ground pool that I set up uh, a couple of weeks ago, which has been a real hit. And uh, it's still warm enough that the pool is being heated up, that it's actually quite a nice, pleasant temperature. You wouldn't want to jump in it at the you know most extreme hot d- uh, time of the day to try and cool off because it's about 30 something degrees Celsius oh. in the pool. Uh, <laughs> but as the sun starts going down, it is very nice because it's kind of, you know, stays that that, that warm temperature. Oh, um, that'd be pleasant. Yeah, so that's quite nice. So I've been jumping in the pool on the early afternoons uh, to try and sort of enjoy the last of the day. And if it's raining, it's not so bad. You don't really care so much. But um, hopefully, we'll get some better weather soon and we are going to talk about the weather a little bit later on so let's move on more than half of new south wales strata buildings have defects new research has revealed that's phenomenal structural waterproofing and fire safety defects have been wreaking havoc across new south wales strata buildings now i just want to insert here so that people understand when we say strata buildings we're talking primarily we're talking like apartment buildings a building that is owned by multiple people um a new report has revealed 53 percent of new south wales buildings have had serious defects over the past five years with only half being resolved within 12 months The number has risen from 39% in 2021, with the most common defects, including waterproofing, fire safety, structural and key services, including such things as lifts and plumbing. So basically, a bit of everything. (laughs) (laughs) The report by Strata Community Association New South Wales and the Office of Building Commissioner has revealed that more than half of all strata buildings had serious defects between 2016 and 2022, with an estimated 79 million spent by owners' corporations to fix the issues. The average cost of rectifying serious defects was $283,000 per building. That's a bit of a rude wake-up call. <laughs> Very report, much. Oh, I'd be, yeah, I wouldn't be happy. The report revealed nope. that despite the increased number of overall defects, defects in new buildings have decreased since 2020, with more owners confident in reporting to the regulator. So things aren't all doom and gloom. It seems like the problems, the systemic problems are sort of getting sorted out. But the data does come from a survey completed by more than 600 strata managers and indicates an increase in serious defects since the last published report back in 2021. And that's a good, uh, that's, that's a good sample because that uh, strata managers are going to be uh, typically managing more than one building. So that's, that's significant. Yes. Generally speaking, yes. Um, Yeah. 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 The most common defects reported was waterproofing at 42%, which is absolutely, that's way too high. Ridiculous. Because waterproofing is also one of those really awkward things that, because it is a base layer, generally speaking, and it's more of a membrane, uh, you can't easily fix it without tearing bedrooms, bathrooms. You know, you're basically pulling things apart, lifting up tiles, all sorts of stuff to get to it. 
fire safety systems was 24%, which is deeply disturbing. Building enclosures was 19%. I'm not 100% sure exactly what they mean by enclosures uh, because cladding is listed separately. Uh, Structural issues was 15%, which again, deeply horrendous. (laughs) Like that's not something easily fixed. Again, not good. Not good at all. Key services such as plumbing and elevators was 14%. I don't want to get in a building with a shonky elevator. Uh, and non, <laughs> non-compliant cladding was 8%. Though, as much as I joke and say that, I should, I should uh, clarify that elevators, especially in Australia, are highly, highly regulated and they are generally incredibly safe. Uh, you're more likely to get caught in an elevator than you are to have some sort of injury or something like that. Basically, the elevator won't fall you'll just get stuck inside. Depending on your phobias, that might be worse. (laughs) Well, I'd I'd prefer to be stuck and screaming rather than plunging towards the bottom of a a lift shaft. Completely agree. Now, the Strata Community Association President Stephen Brell said tackling building defects continued to be a formidable task and one that is time-consuming, financially burdensome, and emotionally draining for all involved. The report also revealed that the most common barriers to dealing with serious defects were delays from the builders or developers. What a surprise. And the lack of engagement from building developers as well as the upfront costs involved. None of those. That's not a surprise at all to anyone involved, quite frankly. Um, That the the builder doesn't want to know about it. What a surprise. I think this is especially like this report comes at a time where we're in the, you know, we're facing a housing crisis. We're looking, you know, the government wants to build a million homes, da 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 da. Obviously, high density housing like apartment buildings, strata complexes, that sort of stuff are an easy way to pump up those numbers pretty quickly. And it is disturbing to see New South Wales being the the most populous state in Australia. It, it is really disturbing to see this sort of, I don't know, disregard for the, yeah, and the, you know, what Great happened word. to having, yeah, the, the, what happened to having pride in your work? What happened to doing a good job for the sake of doing a good job? Um, you know, <laughs> Building contractors around the world don't have the best reputations, and it's because of things like this, you Mm. know, Um, cutting corners, trying to make as much money and just doing doing shonky work, basically, is what it boils down to. Yeah, and look, I I can understand that as a human driver, um, but I don't quite understand it as... The, the personal satisfaction. In fact, my, my sister just got uh, some renovations done and just about everybody who heard about her builder was pretty much astounded. Like she threw, she had known, got onto them through, through work. He was just absolutely uh, particular about doing good work. He, uh, if there was delays, he would ex- explain why. He even he even worked it out so that he he looked at what they wanted. Like it was a, a Renault 
and he said, look, if we if we put up a temporary thing here, we move a bit of plumbing there and do this and that, you and your family will be able to actually stay in these rooms that we're not touching while we're doing the the work and it'll be dust-free because we've got these things up and you won't have to pay for rent. Um, had suggested that, to, which worked out extremely well, and the finished result has been great. He was, yeah, he wasn't the cheapest, but he was a he was a competitive price. And what was notable was just people were saying, "Oh my God, that's so unusual! What how luck how lucky you were to get someone who was actually, uh, you know, cared about their job." Which is so sad. I mean, it tells you the state of the industry in Australia uh, if we're all surprised that your yeah. sister had a good experience with a with a builder. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it shouldn't be a surprise. It should be, oh, yeah, it's, it, it should be a case of, well, yeah, look, that's not so unusual. You know, so-and-so had that and so-and-so had that. But when it's sort of like, ooh, that's a rare one. That's uh, makes dad when he uh, years ago when he was involved as um, a, a lawyer who was in sort of the environmental law field, local government, and later was working um, with the, the the councils. Now this is many years ago. It might have been even like early early noughties. Uh, I remember him saying one day he said, "There's not a chance in hell he'd ever buy one of these new apartments." That were going up with what he'd seen going on so far, and I thought he was just having a little bit of a, uh, you know, because he was close to it, a bit of a, ah, oh, look, you know, they're sort of, st- it was as was at the start of the the real start of the boom when you just suddenly started to not suddenly, but you were seeing more and more of these things just being thrown up. Uh, but he said, no, he said from what he's he's seen, he said there's going to be a hell of a lot of um, problems with these things in the in the next next ten or fifteen. Years and from that point on, he almost like he was he predicted it to a T at just all this stuff. Nothing has been any surprise at all, and that's the bit that um, you piss me off a bit because he was not the only one who could see this. The authorities who were in charge of overseeing um, the industry could see it. Uh, which meant the government knew about it. And I know there's a whole lot of things like uh, you know, inspections have been outsourced to private entities, etc. However, the bottom line is that ultimately the buck stops at the, the bureaucrats and all this was known to be a problem and it's been known for a problem for a while and we're still getting it. Uh, yeah, It's not as if we're... Oh God! All these ones that were built in, uh, you know, the the year two thousand to two thousand and five. Now we're having issues with them, even new ones uh, that you know, have been up only five years. There's these sort of problems with them, and uh, you know, probably not surprising to hear me say that, but I do think that bureaucratic level is where we're going to have to have some reform. Particularly if we're in this uh, this million house um, drive that Albo's wanting to to go on, it's if it's not fixed, we're just going to keep having these problems. And as you pointed out, a lot of them are very serious problems. 
I mean, when you're talking about fire, I mean, water is a problem, but in some ways it's um, a little bit into the, the nuisance one until it becomes a health, health issue with mould. But when you, as you were pointing out, the level of fire defects, the structural issues, of cladding issues, I mean, they're all really serious uh, issues that it's astounding they haven't been addressed yet. Yeah, and this is what worries me is that we're going to have like a Grenfell Tower type Ooh. situation here in Australia. Uh, the, the the EPS cladding that caused the Grenfell Tower was removed from the vast majority of structures in Australia after that event. So it wasn't like they didn't do anything. And it is non-compliant now. However, if, if the owners of a builder, if the strata manager isn't aware of that, then they're not going to do anything about it. And I mean, it sort of rings back to, I think it was 2019, 2018, 2019, something like that. There was a tower in Sydney uh, that cracked, you may recall, mm. uh, yep. had a massive structural failure. Uh, and I think it was closed. All the residents had to leave for something like 12 to 18 months, and it cost millions, uh, something like like tens of millions of dollars uh, to rectify the builder. Now, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how – I know there was a lawsuit and things like that, but I don't know exactly you know who ended up footing the bill completely and, and, and the specific details. But that's just an example of a, of a pretty catastrophic and very public failure. Um, and you'd – you know, this is before the timeline that we're talking about now. So yeah, things, yep, things exactly. are still happening, you know. And like you said, water is one of those ones that is – quite insidious it, it, it sort of gets in everywhere and over time becomes a bigger and bigger issue so you know you, you have a water leak it may not be a huge issue initially but before you know it your entire apartment or the apartment below you or, or several apartments below you have been completely destroyed and there's mold everywhere and now half the building has to be evacuated and has to be fumigated and rebuilt and blah 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 blah, blah. and this also increases people's insurance costs and that flows through to you my dear listener you know this isn't just oh those city people with those city buildings silly them no this actually does touch you if you own a house and have it insured i can guarantee the almost all of the insurance companies that you're insured with or your options are with one of them has a spin-off that insures stratas that insures these apartment buildings these apartment complexes or townhouse complexes, things like that. And so if they're having problems and they're making insurance claims, that affects you as well. It directly affects your pocket. So it's in everyone's best interest that that sort of stuff gets sorted quickly. Um, But it is a bit of a shame that it seems like the New South Wales government really haven't cracked down on this as much as they should have in the past because this is something that's been going on for quite a while now. Um, It's embarrassing, quite frankly. Yeah, and look, if you're holding yourself out as the, the, the setter of standards and the overseers of inspectors, then you have to take the, the good with the, the bad. Um, I'm not sure what good things have come, but I'm sure, I'm sure they must be, <laughs> must be out there. But uh, it's, a, it's, a single, it's a single area of responsibility up the top, so therefore they're the ones that are responsible. And unfortunately, uh, 
in the same way that you made the comment about the risk from insurance being passed on to everybody, uh, the inefficiencies of that bureaucracy get passed on to everybody because the solution is inevitably, well, we now need more people and more taxes rather than getting the job done right. Speaking <laughs> speaking of um, having pride in your work, rather than getting the job run done right in the first place. Exactly. And that's what it comes down to is people cutting corners, developers not doing the right thing. I guess there's a, you know there's somewhat of a failure of like building inspectors and site managers and things like that for these things as well. Um, there's yep. a certain degree of responsibility there with them. Uh, and and look, you know, you mentioned before about how this is something that's been going on for a long time. Um, I've had clients that had problems with insurances, getting uh, professional indemnity insurances that are in the building trade because of stuff like this that's been going on in other states, particularly New South Wales, for years. So, again, mm. this is, like, not surprising to anyone that's even tangentially uh, associated with the building industry. It's kind of like an open secret. And quite frankly, it's it's pretty embarrassing and disgusting. And, look, I know there's a lot of good builders, good contractors out there doing the right thing day in, sure. day out. Um, but, you know, I feel like... I don't know how to fix this problem. Maybe we have a, a hotline to dob them in on or, or something like that. I don't know. But I think we need to start naming and shaming these developers that are doing this sort of stuff, these building companies, these contractors that are doing dodgy work, that are doing the crap, uh, uh, you know, their standards are crap and they shouldn't be allowed to continue to operate, quite frankly. Yeah, I can I can see that approach. Yeah. You know, I suppose one of the issues there is that uh, usually these are done under you know, limited liability type companies. So, you know, you, mm. you, you set up Dodgy Brothers, um, yeah, Dodgy, Dodgy Brothers uh, Chatswood, and that goes out of business because you've got something else and just, you know, let that company uh, leave, leave that company and just set up another company yeah, do dodgy yeah. brothers two e stepping or something yeah. like that uh there's that layer between the responsibility the corporate entity and then the actual um individual that's not being met up so you have uh individuals who don't really have any uh there's not there's not as much risk to them because they can simply close a company and start again. Yes, I know what you mean. And I, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I feel like there needs to be a way to plug this loophole, whether it is with individual registration to a, a state government body, like things like doctors, like accountants, like financial planners, these people, the indemnity lies with them, mm. not their company, because Thank they're you. the That's ones the that are doing That's the word I was trying to think of, in, where the indemnity lies, yeah. Yeah, so I'm wondering if, look, other industries have solved this problem, and I'm wondering if the building trade is going to have to end up going in a direction like that because of these sorts of things that are going on, um, you know. Uh, as 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 people like to say, you know, at the end of the day, you need to be able to sign your work and and say that you did it, and you've got pride in it, and you're happy with the job. And if you can't do that, or if you're not willing to, 
you know, maybe we need to to get these people out of the industry. And I understand that we already have sort of a trades shortage, so that doesn't sound like the best thing to do in this uh, in this time period. But it's never it's never going to be a good time. It's always going to be inconvenient and frustrating. And quite frankly, now I think is the time that we need to do something like this before this problem spreads everywhere else. You know, it's a cancer, and we can't just let it run around um, untreated. We need to nip this in the bud quickly. Yeah, um, we've got we've got a quality shortage as as well. It's it's a big problem. And look, we're, as listeners know, um, Prime Minister Albanese does regularly listen to this uh, podcast. I think from memory, he might have been listener number thirty seven early on, but I could have that wrong. So, Albo, I like your target of uh, a million houses, but you've got to get this sorted out uh, before you embark on that, because otherwise. It's a predictable fail. We want a million quality houses yeah. that will stand 25, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. Not ones that are going to fall over or... What's the point in building an apartment building if it has to be evacuated? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on. It's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. All right, this week we're going west out to Exmouth in Western Australia. Population in 2021 of about 2,800. It's located 1,264 kilometers north of Perth. That's about 785 miles for our Americans. Grab a beer a brew or something, because this is going to be a bit of a wild story. Can I look um, at my picture yet, or do I have to you, wait? You can, you can look at the picture if you want to. I don't think – so, listeners, <laughs> I've sent Ardita a picture. I don't think he's going to know what it is, but I would actually quite like for you to, to, to look at it now and then try and describe what you're seeing to, to, to the listeners. I'm seeing – and listeners, we'll, we'll – I think we'll be able to link this in um, uh, link this in the the actual show notes. If not, we'll work out a. What am I seeing? I am seeing something that looks like a Google map, and it looks like like a Google Maps satellite image um, yep. with some coastline. And I'm assuming that the hexagonal um, multi striated. Um, shape being shown is actually part of the landscape rather than super imposed because there seems to be a building in the middle gosh there's lots of lots of things with six coming out of there it's presumably not the um nothing to do with the hexagon that we've seen on uh was it Saturn or Jupiter that we saw that hexagon um, I, I think it's, it's on both, but no, it's got nothing. Not wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I suppose you already gave it away. It's, it's X, Xmouth. So it's it looks like a very very large hexagon with a hexagon inside it, and I don't know whether they're roads or tracks or markings. Are, I'll, I'll give you a hint. They are tracks between something. So kind of like, it's like a, like a, oh, like a hec- cannot- hexagon 
with almost like a star between it with a smaller hexagon. Is it anything to do with radio and communications? It is to do with radio and communication. Oh, okay. Well, I'm keep going because that's interesting. All right, let's let's back up a bit. We'll start with a little bit of history about the area. So, in eight sixteen eighteen, not eighteen sixteen, sixteen eighteen, the Dutch East India Company ship Mauritius oh. under the command of Willem. Janzoon, I've probably butchered that, but anyway, landed so I near. Love that, I love that this has started off in 1618. 1618, there's a lot of history to go through. Uh, he landed in Northwest Cape, just approximately about where the town of Exmouth is today. Uh, now, that satellite photo that you were looking at that we sort of briefly described is just north of the town, about six to seven k's out of the town. So it is very, very close. The explorer Philip Parker King was actually forced, he was a British explorer, and he was forced into the Exmouth Gulf uh, on the 11th of February, 1818. And he spent the next eight days exploring the region in the process and actually named the Gulf Exmouth after the Admiral Edward Pillou, first Viscount of Exmouth. Between 1818 and 1899, the peninsula was regularly visited by Pearlers, of course, pearlers being divers that dive down and find pearls out of shellfish, clams, I assume. <laughs> Oysters. In, yeah, so fast forward a little, bit of, a little bit of time to 1941. I didn't find, I should, sorry, rewind a bit. I didn't find that the area was specifically inhabited by any indigenous group, uh, though I'm sure the larger area probably was, but not specifically the, the peninsula. Um, if I'm wrong, please let me know. Uh, in 1941, with the loss of the naval base in Manila in the Philippines, the US submarines fled to the Dutch East Indies and then into Indonesia uh, until, of course, those ports were also taken over. We're talking World War II, the Japanese invasion. This forced the US submarine fleet to come to Australia, Australian ports out of bomber range. This was pretty important. We didn't want the Japanese to continue to bomb the fleet at anchor. So in early 1942, the submarine base was actually set up in the Exmouth Gulf. And to support these submarines, a submarine tender, USS Peleus, which is a submarine tender is basically, think like a, a cargo ship. Uh, that basically parks itself, pontoons go out the side, submarine comes up, we refuel it, and everything like that, and then it leaves. So they set up a submarine tender in the Exmouth Gulf in, of course, Western Australia. They also got a 500-ton Type B barge that was stationed out there as well, used as an oiler to refuel the subs with fuel uh, and because they had this little base here this sort of temporary base if you like they needed somewhere to set up rest camps for the crews so they established a small settlement uh just inland of where the submarine tender and things was while it was thought the exmouth gulf 
was far enough south and out of a range of attack on the 20th and 21st of May 1943, the base itself was actually attacked by Japanese bombers. So the base was actually moved to Fremantle Submarine Base. The base, when I say it was attacked, it was overflown by a bunch of Japanese bombers. They dropped some bombs. They didn't hit anything. But it kind of spooked everyone. Um, and so they decided to move uh, further south to the Fremantle Submarine Base. In September 1943, the base was used by the very famous Z Special Unit. And they started Operation Jaywick from the Exmouth submarine base and conducted a very successful raid on Japanese shipping in the Singapore harbour. They also started Operation Renew from the base uh, a little bit later on, but that was very unsuccessful with all the team members killed uh, as the Japanese found them before the raid. Six Z Special Crew members killed have their names uh, immortalised in the streets of Exmouth. Uh, to this day, which is a bit cool. I would really, I kind of have to, there's a lot of history, so we're going to go through this pretty quickly, but if you haven't heard about Operation Jaywick and the the Z Special Unit, I really strongly uh, advise you to look it up. This is kind of the precursor to the SASR in Australia, uh, sort of special forces, uh, infiltration, international espionage, all of that kind of stuff. It's very, very cool. Yeah, I was going to to ask you what, but... but (laughs) If it's a, if it's a long one, well, I'll, yeah. have to, I'll, I'll have to look it up myself. We're not even halfway. We have to keep going. <laughs> um, so, in 1945, uh, most of the military facilities in the area were destroyed by a cyclone. This was also part of the problem with this specific location uh, in the Gulf of Exmouth because... Uh, it is cyclone prone in that area compared to further south. There was always a bit of a worry about setting up too many, too much permanent uh, base infrastructure at the time, which is why they used, uh, instead of actually building a full facility, they just kind of was a bit of a ramshackle. But then that was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because, of course, as soon as the cyclone came through, it, it sort of destroyed everything. So anyway. During that period, though, they did build an airbase uh, or sort of a runway, I should call it, uh, a, 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 not a tarmac runway, just a, a dirt runway uh, just south of this area. And in 1963, so we're going to fast forward a bit more, in 1963, the Western Australian government, the town planning department, uh, chose three sites on the northerly tip of the peninsula where they planned to use 121 hectares to build a town which would house 702 people. Meanwhile, and I'm sure it was no coincidence, the Prime Minister, Harold Holt, signed an agreement (laughs) with the US government to build a naval communication station just north of the new, well, the proposed new town of Exmouth. Exmouth was officially gazetted Gazetted? Gazetted in 1963. And its first two civil commissioners were Colonel K. Murdoch and Air Commodore T. Walters. Um, By 1964, there were only four permanent houses in the town. Most most of the population still lived in the Burton Shore Caravan Park. So it was all happened very, very quickly. And again... This area seems to be uh, one of which a lot of uh, temporary sort of structures are built. 
the state i should say as well for our international listeners that don't quite know where this is it is very remote western australian coastline so there's not a lot around here uh, the station was commissioned as the U.S. Naval Communications Station Northwest Cape on the 16th of September 1967 at a ceremony with the U.S. Ambassador to Australia, Ed Clark, and the Prime Minister of Australia, Harold Holt. They did, at the ceremony, they did what they call a peppercorn, peppercorn payment uh, for the rent of the the sort of the lease of the land uh this is where you know they'd still do this today where they pay like a dollar for rent or something like that um i believe in this case it literally was a peppercorn that the u.s ambassador ed clark gave to prime minister harold holt i wonder what he did with it yeah. <laughs> he said, that's tremendous. This is going to be my lucky charm. I'm going to take it with me on my next swim. <laughs> In September the following year, the station was officially renamed to U.S. Naval Communications Station Harold E. Holt. In memory of the late Harold Holt, Prime Minister of Australia, who disappeared whilst swimming and was declared dead, presumed drowned, Three months after the station was commissioned, but we know he he that peppercorn he took that with him <laughs> to China, that Chinese submarine he climbed in, and went to to China. That's right. And came up there and they said, "Have you got the peppercorn?" And he just <laughs> produced it with a smile. <laughs> with the election of the Labor government to power in 1972, the Defence Minister Lance Bernard started negotiations on the condition of the operation of the US military bases in Australia. Because this was a pretty contentious sort of point at the time, uh, post-Vietnam uh, War, or at least Australia's involvement in the war and things like that. And on the 9th of January 1974, a joint statement by the Defence Minister and the US Secretary of Defence assigned the Deputy Commander of the base to a Royal Australian Naval Officer and gave Australian personnel in-base technical and maintenance functions. However, the cipher room was closed to Australian scrutiny. So prior to this, this base was very much a US military installation they were never allowed Australians on board the base. There were never Australian personnel, uh, military personnel stationed there or anything like that. In May 1974, several hundred people travelled to North Cape from around Australia to protest and occupy the base and, quote, unquote, symbolically reclaim it for the Australian people. During the oh. occupation, the Eureka, the Eureka flag was flown over the base with 55 people arrested during the protest. The U.S. designation was dropped from the station's official title with the advent of the joint United States and Royal Australian Navy operation in 1974. And in 1991, an agreement was reached between the governments of Australia and the United States that would make the facility uh, Australian Naval Communications Station by 1999, a transition that began with Royal Australian Naval officers taking command of the facility in 1992, and the majority of US naval presence ending in 1993 with the withdrawal of all uniformed US personnel. Ah. Hang on. But hang on, DK, I hear you say. What does this base actually do? Obviously, it's a communications base. We've established that. But what's so important about this facility? Yeah. 
The station is operated and maintained by the Australian Department of Defence on behalf of the Australian and the United States and provides very low-frequency radio transmissions. These are sent to United States Navy, Royal Australian Navy, and allied ships, but most importantly, submarines in the Western and Eastern Indian Ocean. Apparently, the frequency is 19.8 kilohertz. I don't know what that means with a transmission power of one megawatt, which sounds like a lot. Uh, And it is the most powerful transmission station in the Southern Hemisphere. Huh. Now, in July 2002, the Royal Australian Navy handed the operation of of the station to the Defense Material Organization, the base is currently operated under contract by Raytheon Australia. Raytheon Australia oh, is a subsidy oh, oh, of Raytheon, a defense contractor from the United States of America. The base well, has isn't that sneaky. <laughs> hmm. The base has since begun expansion of its facilities to include C-band space surveillance radar for the space situational awareness capability, allowing the tracking of space assets and debris. So this is all of a sudden becoming quite important facility once again because there is a lot of space here at the Haraldi Hulk. Now, the image... Sorry, just to, just to interrupt, did you... Did I... Hear correctly, so there's there's no Australian defence um, force there, or there there is, but Raytheon's running it. I, I sort of missed that bit. There's a bit of both, I believe. So technically, the Royal Australian Navy handed the facility over to the Defence Material Organisation, which is uh, one of these government organisations that maintains and operates uh, defence capabilities to take it off the hands of of the military because it just, you know, like personnel and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, and it's currently operated by Raytheon Australia. However, I can say with almost certainty that there would be naval personnel coming and going out of that facility on a fairly regular basis, or at least they'd be in contact to it. I don't know how often they'd actually go out there just because I don't think they'd need to, but I'm sure 99.9% of the phone calls that they get are from from naval personnel. Uh, When I was in the Navy, we definitely knew about this facility, but it wasn't something that I personally knew of anyone actually having ever gone to just because it's just a piece of infrastructure kind of thing. So... um, but if you did drive past and you saw a uniformed person, it wouldn't surprise me too much. Okay, okay. Uh, so why was this base so con- uh, contentious and, and why did the Americans build it here? Basically, the very low-frequency radio transmissions that were, were uh, that this facility was built to to transmit on is really one of the only ways that they can contact submarines when they're underwater. And so the Americans, particularly during the Cold War, needed a facility that they could use uh, in this hemisphere uh, to contact their their fleet of submarines uh, when they were in the Indian Ocean, uh, which the Indian Ocean is famously very big. (laughs) Um, And this is the sort of thing at the time you couldn't really just rely on satellites to do. Uh, so that image that I've sent you that sort of looks like a, uh, 
almost like a pentagram or something like that. Um, to give you a sense yeah, of scale, like, yeah, it's it's friggin' huge. It's, um, if I measure it, it's like 1.6 Ks oh, from wow. point to point, something like wow, that. Okay. So it is, yeah, it is a very big facility. And, and where those sort of points are in the in the, the pentagram, uh, in, the, in the hexagon, and, and the smaller one is the... Uh, towers and the the central tower is 380 meters high it's massive Um, so it is a very big facility it is very cool it's kind of looming uh, on the on the horizon as you come up to it because this is just outside the the town of Exmouth Um, this is probably a silly question that hopefully you know the answer to but if they're communicating with subs, how does an antenna sitting on the, on the land, land actually do work? it? I have no idea. Oh, no, I, I, that's, no a great, that's, that's actually a great question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, here's a... I mean, obviously it does, but... Yeah, I, I, I think it bounces it up off the, the high atmosphere. I think is how it works, but don't quote me on that because I'm not 100 okay. percent sure. Yep. But I'm pretty sure they sort of bounce it off the the like stratosphere or, or the ionosphere probably, and it sort of comes back down uh, towards the ground. But that's a really good question that I'm not 100 percent sure of. Um, so I've just sent you another photo where you can see it uh, on from like a plane flying by, and you can sort of oh, see it. Right. Makes a, it makes a bit more sense when you see oh, it. Oh, okay. So, yeah. right, I, I see what you're saying now. So just for uh, listeners at, at home or at, at work or driving around the car, wherever you may be, um, when you're driving by and you see those big, um, like large sort of uh, scaffolding-type poles that are red, and white, yeah, and like typically broadcasting somewhere. Like you look at it and you think, okay, that's that's a radio thing. Yeah, and at night it's like got the red lights like- on it and stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's like a bunch of them. I think there's like I don't know, I haven't counted them, but there's there's quite a few of them, and they're all linked together in sort of this like star pattern. It actually looks quite yeah. cool. But anyway, well, that's a big concern. Hmm. So. This facility, because of its origins with the US military in the Cold War, is all very secret. Australians can't go there. What's going on? You know, the town is right there. There's been a few conspiracies coming out of the the Harold E. Holt Naval Communication Station. So let's move on. (laughs) We'll delve a little bit (laughs) into some of this. So. The Harold E. Holt Naval Communications Station lies almost perfectly on the flight path of a Qantas flight QF-72 and 71 that flies from Perth to Singapore. So QF-71 originates in Perth and flies to Singapore, and QF-72 originates in in Singapore and flies to Perth. Now, again, I'll keep this really quick because we've already talked a lot about uh, this this sort of topic. But on the 7th of October 2008, QF Flight 72 with 315 people on board departed Singapore on a scheduled flight to Perth over Western Australia. At 12.40 Western Standard Time, when the aircraft's three flight inertial reference units started providing incorrect data to the flight computer. An incident occurred. 
this response to anomalous data, the autopilot automatically disengaged. A few seconds later, the pilots received an electronic message on the aircraft's control panel saying something's wrong and there's an irregularity in the autopilot and the inertial reference systems. And contradictory audible stall and overspeed warnings started. During this time, the captain began to control the aircraft manually. Two minutes later, the aircraft made a sudden uncommanded pitch down maneuver experiencing negative eight g's and reaching a 8.4 degree pitch down and rapidly descended 200 meters or 650 feet 20 seconds later the pilots were able to return the aircraft to the assigned flight cruise level however a minute and a half after that You've just caught your breath. We're still flying. Everything's okay. The aircraft made a second uncommanded maneuver of a similar nature, this time causing an acceleration of plus 0.2 Gs and a 3.5 degree down angle with a loss of a further 120 meters or 400 feet until the flight crew was able to reestablish the aircraft's assigned flight about 16 seconds. Unrestrained and even some restrained passengers and crew were flung around the cabin or crushed by overhead luggage that flew out of the the baggage containers, as well as crashing with and through overhead compartment doors. The pilots stabilized the plane and declared a a state of emergency, which was later updated to, uh, sorry, a state of alert, which was later updated to a mayday, a state of emergency. When the extending injuries were relayed to the flight crew, the flight made an emergency landing at RAF base Learmonth, which is also called Learmonth Civil Airport, which is located just south of the town of Exmouth. Hmm. At the base, the Royal Flying Doctor Service and Care Flight uh, evacuated more than 20 serious injured people to Perth and others were treated at the nearby Exmouth Hospital. And Qantas sent two planes with medical teams and customs officers from Perth to Exmouth to help treat the uninjured people and fly those not hurt back to Perth. Now, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau immediately started an investigation and was supported by the Australian Civil Aviation Safety Authority, Qantas, the French Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety, that's a mouthful, and Airbus, because they were flying on an Airbus A320. To keep this short and not too technical, because probably what I said before was a little bit too technical for some of our listeners, the aircraft was equipped with a air data inertial reference unit manufactured by the US company Northrop Grumman. It found that the CPU of this air data inertial reference unit was found to be corrupted and the angle of attack data specifically. Now, angle of attack is basically how planes understand, uh, for all the pilots that are listening, I'm going to butcher this, uh, but I'm trying to keep this really basic. So basically angle of attack is the angle of which your uh, sort of, plane's wings are directed into the airstream, if that makes sense. So whether it's pointing up, whether it's pointing down and all these sorts of things. Um, And of course, when it is in level flight, 
So this error triggered a high angle of attack protection mode, thinking that the plane is pointing its nose towards the sky and that a stall is imminent. And it sent a command to the electrical flight control system to pitch the nose down, which is why the plane flew downwards. But why? Well, a number of potential trigger types were investigated, including software bugs, software corruption, hardware faults, electromagnetic interference, hmm, and secondary high-energy particles generated from cosmic rays and even solar flares. Although a definitive conclusion was never reached, sufficient information from multiple sources enabled the conclusion that most of the potential triggers were very unlikely to have been involved, and a much more likely scenario that it was a marginal hardware weakness from some of the units uh, were susceptible to the effects of some sort of environmental factor, which triggered the failure mode. Hmm. Mm. Speculation arose that interference from the Naval Communications Station Harold E. Holt or possibly some passenger's personal electronic device could have been involved in the incident. But the uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau assessed that this possibility is extremely unlikely. Hmm. Now... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the 27th of December 2008, so a few months later, a Qantas A330-300 aircraft was operating from Perth to Singapore, QF-71, and was involved in exactly the same thing. The autopilot <laughs> By that dis- stage, had been known as the brown corduroy manoeuvre. <laughs> the autopilot was immediately disconnected, and the crew received an alert indicating a problem with the... Uh, what do we call them? The Air Data Inertial Reference Unit. Uh, And the crew performed the revised procedure released by Airbus after the earlier incident and returned to Perth uneventfully. However, just to sprinkle a a few grains of salt on this conspiracy, the aircraft was approximately 650 kilometres south of the Naval Communications Station at the time of the incident. So... Was it the cause the first time? Oh, possibly, but the second time, probably not Not so much. But uh, but it is a fun story. So you can fly to the town of Exmouth via the Learmonth Airport to experience the World Heritage-listed uh, Nigaloo Marine Park, one of the world's... Actually, sorry, it is the world's largest fringing reef. It's a mecca for divers and snorkelers and Exmouth, and its surrounds offer some of the most unforgettable ex- encounters you will ever experience, especially because between March and August, you can swim with whale sharks. Oh, wow. The gentle giants of the sea. They're also very uh, well known for manta rays and things like that out there as well. So definitely on the bucket list. I know I spent a lot of time talking about the uh, Naval Communications Station Harold E. Holt because it is a bit of a fun, quirky little thing that happened here in Australia. A bit of history. Um, A lot of history. But genuinely, uh, the town of Exmouth, it really exists today, not just servicing the base, uh, the RAF base to the south, and of course, the Naval Communications Station to the north of the town, but the tourism is really what keeps keeps the town alive and the lifeblood of the area. So while you can't tour the Naval Communications Station, you can definitely see it from the town, uh, especially at night when it all lights up. So 
get in your car, get on a plane, probably not QF Flight 72. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fly to Perth and then drive from there to Exmouth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, the Learmonth Airport is actually south of the town, so you wouldn't fly over the, the Naval Communication Station. But um, get out there, go and experience one of these remote con- uh, locations. I don't think you'd regret it. Oh, that's interesting. That's a lot of that's a lot of history going into that. I didn't know that there was um, that submarine base either. And I, I suppose I hadn't thought of it before. But you were talking about the the tender and how that's just essentially where they can come up and and dock. And yep. it was also interesting too that uh, yet another place in. Australia that during the war that was uh, had an interaction with the the enemy at that stage the the Japanese I did you I think you said that uh, they didn't they didn't drop any bombs or anything no they they uh, they didn't hit anything they dropped bombs oh, didn't they didn't hit anything. yeah they didn't hit right. anything yeah so again it's another one of these places in Australia that was was actually bombed by the Japanese. They did send uh, aircraft from from the base down in Learmonth. They did send some aircraft up uh, to sort of fly out and chase them off. Um, Learmonth is probably about 35k south uh, of Exmouth. uh, And the the actually we mentioned them before. They were uh, RAF boomerangs domestically built uh, fighters from Australia, and they flew right. out there. But sort of, by the time they got there, the the bombers were kind of too far away. And by the time they sort of chased them down, they were running out of fuel. And so it was all kind mm-hmm. of a lot of nothing, really. Um, yeah. The bombers didn't hit anything. The fighters didn't get them. So that, but they just decided, look, you know, we've been discovered. We better sort of skedaddle and and move to a, to a more secure location. So, so they did, but. Um, I wonder what wonder what this holds too with this um, the the AUKUS agreement with the submarines. What that's going to be, whether that's going to sort of play any part of it, because that's uh, like I like the uh, the little sort of peas under the cup movements that you were going into with it was the the US and it became a political um, a political hot potato. So then they threw the Australians in and. But then there was that uh, you know, Raytheon Australia, which is you may as well just be Raytheon US and Raytheon US with their controls in the uh, the US government. Uh, you, you're thinking, okay, well, they so they've come in now, and it's it's just like it was. Yeah, well, we'll look, we'll, we'll placate the people uh, getting getting up in arms about this. Uh, we'll rename it. We'll throw it in there. That'll die down. It goes away, and then we'll quietly put in another method of control in there that was yeah that was that yeah. was funny to hear that those sort of little maneuverings yeah you you hear those things and you realize that uh people in that industry and that might have that mindset of a few decades as opposed to next month's barbecue yeah exactly they, they'll um yeah, like you said, they'll just placate the people, keep everyone happy, and and that'll be the end of that. Because this really was like there's sort of two major facilities. There's the one uh, just outside the town, like I said, probably five or six k's out of the town, which is the original one. And there is a one a, a bit further north, uh, sort of on the tip of the Cape, which is the more modern facility. And look, I don't know how much 
this facility is used compared to say like satellite communications these days i genuinely have no idea but oh, yeah. yeah like they're not going to give up uh this sort of capability as sort of a, a you know like a backup or something like that um i'm sure there's pros and cons to both sort of means of communication and things like that so i think this is going to be quite important and as i said these days the facility is being upgraded and expanded for uh uh, use for uh, space force stuff. So both yeah, the Americans. Yeah, that was an interesting little thing that you you, you threw in, in in there. You had you had two space related things. So the the satellite, and I you may know may not know the answer to this, but the satellite communications. I mean, look, my understanding of radio waves is is very rudimentary, but I do have a, a reasonable enough to to know that we've got to have these great big ones to have these big long wavelengths that um get sent out however they do it past there but i didn't i didn't think that was the case with satellites so with satellites don't they have to throw like float something up to the surface to communicate with satellites or do satellites penetrate through the water or do you not know i think i think to get a proper signal you're right they do have to come up and they put like a, a sort of like a, a buoy or a buoy as our americans like to say um buoy, yes, that's to, to aid with the communications as some you know as a form of antenna if you like um i think it just makes it a lot lot clearer i think they can do very limited uh communications whilst they're underwater um i'm not 100 percent sure exactly how that works and it's probably all classified if i'm honest so um and yeah, I think probably. that's the thing. I think because of the submarine angle, because basically in the Navy, when you start talking about submarines, it all becomes very hush-hush. You know, they called the silent service for a reason. It's all sub submariners often sort of keep to themselves and things like that. Um, they're just a different kind of group of sailors. And, and, and you know, 99.9% .9 of what they do is, is secret bites nature. Um, mm. So this this sort of facility being that it's primarily for communicating with uh, submarines, obviously it's not limited to that, but that's sort of its main job, um, kind of has that same sort of idea of, of sort of secretness and, 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 you know, that sort of thing, which there's a lot of people that don't like that. They're like, what is this for? And you say it communicates with submarines, so we can't really say much more than that. And then, oh, that's not good enough. You know, you're forming us off. And so naturally, of course, um, these sort of conspiracies start ar ar arriving. That QF uh, Flight 72, was that <laughs> caused by, by <laughs> interference? We have no idea. The reality is we don't know. It could have been. It could have not been. There's a, there's, that flight flies every day. So there hasn't been a, a problem since. Uh, there wasn't mm. a problem before that. Was it, was it caused by interruption from the base? No idea. They haven't told us. We don't know. It could have been covered up. Probably not. Um, but again, like I said, we don't know. So it's one of these things that's just kind of a bit, you know, uh, hush, hush. And it's going to be like that moving forward. So the United States. Yeah, uh, the yes. United States Especially when you said the thing yeah. with the, the space. It's not, it's not going to get any more open, is it? No, so the United States Space Surveillance Network, which I think is part of NASA and Space Force, I think now as well, um, is 
I think part of it's being relocated to the facility. Uh, and of course, the Royal Australian Air Force, Australian military doesn't have Space Force, but we do. Space is uh, the domain of the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, so they have facility there as well. Uh, that, uh, again, I think it's just a piece of infrastructure. I don't think there's actually any uh, Air Force personnel at the base, you know, day to day. But again, this sort of facility, there's there's lots of space there. It is a very big area. So it wouldn't surprise me if we just keep seeing new sites pop up next, you know, next to it and things like that. But um, we don't have a lot of this sort of stuff in Australia. So it's kind of cool no. to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, it's well, what, with the space thing, with any luck, we'll get another peppercorn. I hope so. <laughs> just don't give it to Harold Holt. Yeah, exactly. The lucky just, peppercorn. Just thinking yeah. who's going to get that peppercorn. I don't, I don't know me. I don't want the lucky peppercorn. <laughs> oh, All that right. was very that was very interesting. And I was it was fun um holding out until holding out till today to to have a look at that picture. I know you said I could have had a look before, but I thought I'll I'll wait till we actually get to this this segment so getting a, a a live and true reaction wouldn't have picked that i could i was sort of as you heard i was sort of thinking that it was possibly some communications thing but that overhead view was very mysterious yeah it does look a bit weird um and actually you can draw uh like like i said sort of like a pentagram through the middle of it which i'm sure gives some people the willies which i think is kind of funny so <laughs> let's let's move on the australian government uh the australian emergency management minister i swear we're just making up ministries at this point uh <laughs> murray watt has ordered a review of the weather warning system after criticism of the bureau of meteorology the Bureau has been criticised for its forecasting of weather warning system after ex-tropical cyclone Jasper in Queensland's far north and the Christmas Day storms that lashed the state's southeast, which we sort of briefly spoke about last week in our annual wrap-up. And, of course, when Jasper made a landfall, residents in the Cairns suburb of Holloway's Bay reported only receiving major flood warnings after they'd been majorly flooded. On the Gold Coast, one of the hardest-hit regions in the southeast Queensland, the mayor, Tom Tate, said it was unforgivable that a weather warning went out to residents after the Christmas Day storms had already passed through. Watt said that uh, said he had tasked the Emer- National Emergency Management Agency with bringing the Bureau, state governments and councils together to find out where warning processes may be lacking. He said, and I quote, it might be that the Bureau need to provide clearer information than they are. It might be that councils need more training on how to recognize the signals and translate that information from the Bureau into text messages. Watt said that climate change was having an impact on the weather and the science being used to predict and alert people. The models that have been traditionally used are having to change because the climate is changing. No shit, Sherlock. Uh, this is something. <laughs> <laughs> this is something I know the bureau is working very hard on, but unfortunately, reality is the climate change means that we are living through more unpredictable weather. I'm kind of glad that he's self-aware enough to to bring that up. The fact that you know the, the traditional models just aren't stacking up with actually what's happening on the ground. Yeah. yeah. The, the, 
The Queensland Premier Stephen Miles has welcomed a review of the warning systems. He said that the weather events that we've been seeing are changing, and if there are ways that we can improve our alert systems, that's a good thing. That's that's good. It's good. Uh, Watts said that the federal government was working on a new national messaging system, which will be expected to be released in early 2024. So... As someone that lives in Queensland, as someone that watched some of these things happen uh, and have been involved in pretty severe weather events myself, flash flooding and things like that, I've never had an emergency, a national emergency, uh, one of these text messages or anything like that, weather warnings or whatnot, um, even though we've been in areas that have been severely impacted. I, I, there are apps that kind of help you out. Uh, I use one called Willy Weather that... Does send Love me alerts. Willy weather. Yep. Yeah, that does send me alerts and things like that about impending uh, severe thunderstorms. Actually, there's a severe thunderstorm warning right now. Uh, so if I cut out, that might be why. Um, <laughs> and that that it can be really, really convenient. I'd rather know about the problem and it not be an issue than... But I understand that they, they don't want sort of like fatigue about these sort of messages. So I think they have to find that balance. But clearly... The system's not working that well. I don't know. Look, I, I agree with you on the on on fatigue. I'd made that. Um, in fact, just before I get to that serious one, when when you'd said to me the um, you'd started off about the making up names for the the things, I had had a quick scroll because I knew roughly where it was because I'd taken a photo when I was up in Sydney. There was a thing in the um, <laughs> the New South Wales Art Gallery, and it was opened by. The Honourable John Graham, MLC, Minister for Jobs and Tourism, fair enough. Minister for the Arts, fair enough. Minister for Music and the Nighttime Economy. And I thought, (laughs) you're taking a piss. Really? (laughs) Minister for Music and the Nighttime Economy. That means he likes to party. That's what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Just as you said that, I thought, oh, I remember taking that that shot. But back to the the topic. I had... uh, Oh, it was probably a couple of years ago. Uh, well, no, probably no. I take that back. Probably about uh, only two years ago. I kept looking at these warnings that were coming out, and I was thinking it seems like the pendulum has swung too far the other way, where they got hauled over the coals for not doing enough warnings, and now they were warning about uh, God, just about everything. And cancelling warnings. You, if you're on Willy Weather, you possibly notice there's a lot of warnings get cancelled. And I get that. You can't get everything right, but it feels like the frequency has gone up of cancelled warnings from the Bureau of Meteorology. And you're exactly right with that fatigue in there because I think it's a, it's a valuable service actually giving people a heads up. And you know, part of this story is that they're not giving enough of a heads up, but just on that actual. Uh, warning side, if it starts to be the boy cries wolf too many times, people just become numb to it. And yes. I yeah. get a little bit numb to some of these warnings coming through saying, oh, look, you know, uh, storm predicted for your, your uh, heavy storm predicted for your area. Uh, look, I think, yeah, well, look, I wouldn't like to be um, trying to fly in that, but. Uh, <sighs> You know, I've had wind like that before. I've had rain like that before. And it just, it, as I said, it numbs me a little bit to future warnings. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think that's kind of the problem here is you've got to be the bureau has to find a way to be more specific to because okay, you know, some of these guys, their houses got completely destroyed or roofs torn off and things like that in, in these uh, Christmas Day storms, and you would how upset you'd be receiving a text message after the event oh, had happened saying, by the way, there's a storm coming, you'd be like, you're taking the piss, right? So I feel like the information needs to get out to the people at the right time. And that's always going to be a problem. I don't know that they'll ever completely nail it because, you, like you said, fatigue is going to be a huge problem. You don't want to over-report things. They don't know sometimes where some of these things, some of these events are going to happen. Um, no. So they can't issue warnings for an event that's un, not predicted and things like that. So I think the Bureau's got a lot of work to do ahead of it to try and get better modelling better reporting how they actually reach the people is going to be a big one as well because you know these days you can just send everyone a text message but uh, how do you uh, i don't know how they get it to certain areas do they just ping a tower and everyone within that sort of radius gets it or i'm not really sure how how the whole system works but hopefully with the federal government getting a national messaging system that might be you know this might be able to piggyback off the back of that or something like that because again I, we don't know the specifics of of uh that new system maybe we'll cover it when it comes up um oh i'm sure we'll cover it when it comes <laughs> up <laughs> uh hopefully it's not managed by optus so we'll, you know we'll we'll see and i'm sure yeah We'll we'll talk about that as as we get more information and and, and stuff like that. So I don't know. I think uh, I, I'm glad. I don't want to be the person that has to deal with this problem because I feel like this is a very complicated issue um, that I don't know that they're going to get right the first time they they sort of look at it. But I hope that they do. I hope there's a solution that's fairly easy. Um, but I, yeah, I don't envy the person at the bureau that has to sort this out. No, I, I think it's a complex problem. I think uh, the weather is a, a complex thing and we become uh, yeah, fairly complacent about just how well we can, well, I'm saying we, how well they can predict weather. Yeah, look, I, I wake well, up in the hang morning. on. You've got, a, you've got a weather station now. You're a meteorologist, so we oh, well, yeah, yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, let, let me start again. As a meteorologist, <laughs> I just have to point out the complexity of the vast um, fluffy things in the sky and that water that falls down on us. That, that's the technical terms. So, oh, is it? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to get too, uh, too over the top for you. I, I look at... <clears throat> I look at um, my willy weather for the day, you know, wake up in the morning, check out the weather, and I have a very high level of confidence for it. And willy weather gets their, their information from Bureau of Meteorology, as I understand it. So I have a high level of confidence. I look at the three-day forecast, and I have, a, I have a pretty high level of confidence. They're not too bad that once we get the five days, nah, I'm... I'm sort of like, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. And longer than that, I think, okay, might be, might give me a little bit of a guide. So I do appreciate the service they give. I do appreciate the 
complexity, uh, I think that science is separate to the bureaucracy that is looking at the the messaging and the optics. And I think that particular part of the department is wanting to cover their ass for warnings and is not looking at things like we've we're going to be too late for this warning, so let's not send it out. I feel like that is letting down the actual scientists. Now, I don't know yeah. what's going on in t- internally, but unfortunately, um, it looks surprise, surprise. It's obviously my bias. I make no secret of it. But I suspect that it's become top-heavy on the bureaucrats and a bit thin on the ground with the scientists on the, uh, the, the, the cost-cutting because you always, you always cut the costs of the people under your control. You never cut the costs of yourself. You just increase your budgets to uh to make things make things work how your ideology ideology dictates i think that to me is where the the problem is because that does erode the faith in what is a very complex area so look i i give a lot of the i give meteorol i give my fellow meteorologists uh a lot of kudos for what they predict because it is complex i not as generous as the um, PR people and the messages. Yeah, I think that's a good way to sum it up. I, I, it, yeah, I think it's good. I, I do think it's probably good when large organisations do get a bit of a shake up. I think it's kind of yeah. necessary, you know, every now and again. And maybe this is going to be the shake up for the bureau because uh, I have been slipping in some areas. Um, and look, again, it's a complicated issue and it can't be easy having to basically throw out all your models and having to rebuild them all from the ground up and everything like that. The science is complicated and it isn't it isn't an exact science. There is a bit of an art to it, I think. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can expect the Bureau to get bigger and stronger from this and, you know, at the end of the day, get the warnings to the people when they need them so that they can act accordingly and everything like that. So, you know. That's all we can ask from any of them. So let's move on to this week in Australian history. Right, this week in Australian history, we're covering 27th of December to 15th, it's 15th, to 5th, that'd be a long one, 5th of January. Uh, December 27th in 1803, convict William Buckley escapes from Sullivan Bay in Victoria and he lives with the Wartharong Aboriginal people for 32 years. I don't know what happened after those 32 years, but um, he certainly enjoyed his freedom. freedom. Maybe he died? I don't know. Well, well, maybe that's the simplest simplest thing he died, yeah. Uh, well, I get fair, fair enough. Let's go with the obvious one there. Okay, I've just Googled it. He, oh, did you? In, yeah, um, I did, he immediately came up and it said in 1835, he was pardoned and became an Indigenous culture recorder. And from 1837 to 1850, he was a public servant in Tasmania. So he didn't die. He didn't, well, wow. uh, he did eventually die, but not not in that 32 years that he lived out in the bush. That's awesome. What a cool. Damn it, I wish I'd Googled that. That's Yes, yeah, someone needs to build, like, uh, make a movie about him. 
Are you saying that because they have or you? No, someone needs to. Oh, right. No, okay. I, no, I don't so think anyone has. <laughs> your, your tone indicated you're about to spring something on us. Well, that's really that's that's very interesting. Oh, well done. Uh, 1943, Australian forces capture Shaggy Ridge, New Guinea, after a four-month battle against the Japanese. Um, didn't capture Scooby Ridge. Uh, December 28, 1836, South Australia and Adelaide are founded. 1916, floods, floods, floods in Claremont, Queensland, claim more than 60 lives. Holy hell, that's a lot. Um, no, 19... Sorry, let me – this is incredible, so I, I just oh, I have to tell you this. Yep. So there's a well-known phrase in Australia where we say you've got Buckley's chance or you just say Buckley's for short, meaning incredibly improbable or terrible odds at something. And it comes from our friend William Buckley – because oh, his improbable survival is believed to be the source of that vernacular phrase. So you've got Buckley's chance is about William Buckley surviving for 32 years in the bush with the native people and not and, and genuinely surviving and thriving. Oh, excellent. Well so that's done. That's cool. That's Buckley's. cool. God, I saw William Buckley. I thought, no, nah, can't be where that's come from. Wow. God. If I'd have dug a bit on that one, mind you, if I dug a bit, dug a bit that's that's the thing. You go, it's too many. Go, There's too many. Yeah, I know. You see all this. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. And you know, that's one day of history. But ah, uh, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 1989, Newcastle is the epicenter of Australia's only significant earthquake, where 13 died and 160 are uh, injured. I was up in Sydney at that stage uh, for that earthquake. We're in uh, my mother-in-law's unit, uh, so we're up, I think, on the third floor on that one. And Sydney's a long way from Newcastle, and we felt the thing shake. And oh wow, God knows what, yeah. And now, look, I know, I, I know, in terms of people who are in earthquake zones, it's just it's it's pretty much nothing. But you know, if you're over here. Um, we don't, we don't get, yeah, we don't no, get earthquakes exactly. really, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, you, you, th- you throw a disaster the other other, other way and you'd uh, have a similar reaction in areas that have earthquakes but don't have yeah, bushfires or something. So, but, yeah, so I was surprised. It was uh, 5.3 on the Richter scale, I believe, but there have been higher uh, rated uh, earthquakes uh, in Australia, the worst was in Tasmania in 2004 uh, at Macquarie Island. It was an 8.1 on the Richter scale, but because oh, wow. because of where it was, it's basically an, an uninhabited area, so there was no destruction yeah. or anything like that. So, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah, and look, that was yeah. That, I suppose that's the um, uh, that's that's the purpose of using the word significant or yeah. significant adjective. Uh, December 29th. 1696, Flemish captain William de Vlemig arrives at and names Rottnest Island. 1835, Mary Gilbert gives birth to her son, James Port Phillip Gilbert, the first European child born in the Port Phillip settlement of Melbourne. 
That's cool eighteen. that she gave him yeah. some medal. That's yeah, cool. it is. Yeah. 1890, Sir John Forrest becomes the Premier of Western Australia and the first Premier in Australia. Uh, 1928, The Jazz Singer becomes the first sound film screened in Australia and it premiered at the Lyceum Theatre in Sydney. So The the Jazz Singer was a 1927 um, American one featuring songs performed by Al Jolson, so it was it was part talkie and part musical drama um, film. They use sort of recorded music and uh, you know synchronous lips, synchronous singing and and speech. But yeah, it was uh, unsurprisingly a, a big thing at the time, and that particular film effectively marked the end of the the silent film era. So yeah, it was interesting. Mm. We saw that over here. Or heard it, saw and heard it. 1994, cricketer Shane Warne takes a test match hat trick against England at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. And for international um, listeners, you've seen them just bowling at the, the batsman and the the cricketer. They've got wickets behind them. If they hit the if the batsman misses the ball and the bowler hits the, the wicket, they get out. So a hat trick is when you do that three times in a row without actually anything else in between so it's always a big deal and that was yeah. a particularly big deal particularly being in a test match so yeah and against england and against england that's right exactly right uh december 30 in 1951 the australian davis cup team defeats the united states and retains the trophy don't know how well we tend to do since then, but we do do it a bit. Actually, I'm going to take that back. Tennis is not my thing. I might be just I'm talking through my ass on that one. <laughs> but, yeah, I feel like it's one of those things that when we win, it's all uh, everyone's all a cock-a-hoop, and then when we don't, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's worry. Yeah, about who cares? We're yeah, all like yeah, that with a lot of sports, yeah. though, you know. Anyway, yeah. on the yeah. – <laughs> December 31, 1935, the cane toad is introduced into Queensland to control oh, the cane beetle. No. That went so well. You know? That went it, so well. Yeah, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners that don't know, cane toads uh, in, were introduced into Queensland to control the cane beetle. However, it turns out cane toads don't eat cane beetles, or at least if they do, very very minor about amount they're not um they're not like a primary predator or anything like that but the, the cane toad kind of immediately went crazy uh and bred like rabbits uh well bred like toads i guess uh <laughs> and now has significantly overrun most of of almost all of queensland and uh is a huge pest kills millions of uh they're toxic they kill millions of uh, uh, native native animals every year, and dogs, and all the rest, and they're a nightmare. And we get all the children out to kill the cane toads. Uh, they particularly come out in summer, uh, yeah. and we we all get golf clubs and things, and we all go out, and it's pretty brutal. Like it's kind of now that I think about it, when I'm saying it out loud, it's it's a bit of a, a mental thing that we do really. Uh, but it is a fun sport for children to run around with a golf club or a hockey stick or something of that nature and whack cane toads to try and kill them all. Officially, you're supposed to capture them in a bag, 
wrap the bag up and put them in the freezer because apparently they just go to sleep before they freeze and die. However, that seems to me absolutely horrendous and I would much <sighs> rather... I'd rather try to get clobbered in the head and, you know, it'd be quick and over with, but whatever. Yeah. Oh, look, it's, they're, they're such such a pest that even a Peter Vegan would have a couple of rounds of cane toad golf. <laughs> it's really. a lot of fun. It really is. <laughs> and <laughs> we're probably going to get in trouble for that, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, 1964 on December 31st. Uh, Donald Campbell sets a new new land speed record at Dumble Young Lake, Western Australia, of 276 miles per hour, 442 k's. That's quick. That is quick. That's very quick. Yeah. 2005, sections of the Trans-Australian Railway near Urena on the Nullarbor Plain were washed away by flooding, halting passenger and freight services for up to five days. Into the new year, January 1st, 1838, John Pascoe Faulkner founds the Melbourne Advertiser, the first newspaper to be established in Victoria. 1856, Van Diemen's Land is granted self-government with the name of the island and the colony officially changed to Tasmania. 1901, the Australian colonies are officially federated to form the Commonwealth of Australia with John Adrian Louis Hope, 7th Earl of Hopeton, appointed as the Governor-General of Australia. So there's a few letters if you put his name into type on that. Mm. 1915, six people are shot and killed and another seven wounded in an attack at a picnic area at Broken Hill, um, New South Wales. So that was in 1915. And the Battle of Broken Hill, or also known as the Broken Hill Massacre, um, it was an incident that took place near Broken Hill and New South. There was two uh, Muslim former camel drivers from colonial India, who supported the uh, the Ottoman Empire. So it was Badshah Muhammad Ghul and Mullah Abdullah. They shot four people, wounded seven others, and were then killed by police and local vigilantes. Uh, they were politically motivated, but they were not part of any sanctioned armed forces. And the suicide notes that were discovered, uh, the, sorry, the suicide notes were discovered three days later. One of them, Mullah Abdullah's notes, suggested he was motivated primary, primarily uh, by personal grievances against a local food safety inspector. Uh, and the incident has been described as Australia's first terrorist attack. So, I say, it smells yeah. like terrorism, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a reasonable enough um, description. Uh, 1983, the Closer Economic Relations Free Trade Agreement between Australia and New Zealand comes into force, and then on the same day in 2005, the Australian-United States Free Trade Agreement, or a, preferential trade, a preferential trade agreement uh, between Australia and the US comes into force. January 2nd, 1837, the Supreme Court of Australia is established by letters patent five days after the founding of the colony. 
Uh, doesn't take long. 1837. No, yeah. Well, you kind of need it, don't you? If you're going to build, you know, uh, and establish a, a whole new country, you got to start with those basic institutions, say. So. Well, I suppose you do. Five days struck me as pretty quick. Well, they probably uh, had their first case on the on the third day. They needed. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably in a tent. Nine and thirty. Australian philately proper begins with the kangaroo and map series of stamps. Uh, got a couple of those stamps. I mean, they you know, there's a shirtload of them, so they're not uncommon. But um, yeah, they're a, a famous. Uh, Stamp, if you've got even the slightest inclination towards Australian philately. 1943, Australia sends its first envoy to the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, 1961, combined oral contraceptive pills are first sold in Australia. And 1992, George H.W. Bush becomes the first President of the United States to address the Parliament of Australia. Um, January 3rd, didn't you love that restraint that I showed just then about not making <laughs> comments about George H.W. Bush, and I'll keep it that way. Uh, January 3rd, 1870, a state flag of Western Australia is adopted, and in 1900, electric lighting is installed on Adelaide streets. January 4th, 1988, a prison riot at Fremantle Prison Court, Fremantle Prison causes 1.8 million in damage. And in 2006, Sheikh Maktoum bin Rashid Al Maktoum, who is the Vice President, Prime Minister and ruler of Dubai, dies at the Gold Coast of a heart attack. Unsurprisingly, a couple of... Um, yeah, I remember that. I think he was here. There. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was here for, uh, wasn't it like a horse racing event or something like that? Um, I, I think he came to Australia a fair bit. Like, yeah, I'm quite, he, he was quite fond of the Gold Coast, if memory serves me right. Um, yes. Because, yes. And I, I should was... mention your pronunciation was very, very good then. Oh, thank you. Oh, I think he was fond of a few things. <laughs> January 5th, 1891, the. Uh, 1891 Australian Shearers strike begins, which led to the formation of the Australian Labor Party. So that was back in 1891. 1975, the first one-day cricket match is played at the MCG between Australia and England. And in 1975, rounding out this week in Australian history on January 5th, the Tasman Bridge disaster claimed 12 lives. And basically, absolute horror story. Oh, I reckon the there was uh, the SS Lake Illawarra, which was a bulk ore carrier, collided with the the pile cappings of one of the piers. That led to the collapse of three unsupported sections of the the deck. It sank the vessel, vessel resulting in twelve lives. Uh, so the loss of twelve lives split the city in half. Commuters living on the eastern shore had to make a 50k round trip to the CBD via the next bridge to the north. Uh, they put in a whole lot of ferry uh, passenger ferries during that uh, re rebuilding. Uh, a temporary Bailey Beach Bailey Bridge was constructed 10k's to the north of Hobart, and had to look that up. The Bailey Bridge is a type of 
portable prefabricated truss bridge uh, developed in the 1940s uh, by yeah, British military. For, yeah, you, you probably know about it. Yeah, they would you would truck them up. So they're kind of like barges, really, in a way uh, that that they all sort of secure together, and you can sort of attach them. And the, we we still have modern versions of it today, uh, modern military versions, uh, and they can they can actually get them in the water like really quickly, and they can support like tanks and all sorts of stuff. It's, it is very impressive watching it happen, and it all comes out, sets up, and you know within depending on the length, you know, 20, 30 minutes, uh, and then the vehicles all go across and then it all kind of packs up and it's gone again. It's, it's, it is very impressive. So. Uh, look, the way, when you mentioned that tanks, that was some, one of the things I looked up that uh, it said that tanks could go across. I thought that I'm with you. I thought that was pretty impressive. So after two years, the Pleasant Bridge reopened and then they also built another uh, bridge, the Bowen Bridge, just in case there was any future failure of the Tasman Bridge. And that rounds out this week in Australian history, which means I'm now feeling rather partial to a quiz and a beer. <laughs> now, yep, we got two questions again. So, yeah, I think we're, go I think we're going with that now, the two questions on the Forex Bottle Top Quiz questions. Okay. Uh, yeah, look, this is always a bit of an unknown as to what you're going to know and not know. I mean, I've been caught out before. You're, you're, you're usually pretty consistent, but um, not sure on this one. Okay, given your background, how many ships were in the first fleet? I should know this. Uh, I have had this bottle shop before, <laughs> and you'd think I'd know it, but I, I, I can't remember. It's more than I thought. Oh, I want to say like 21. Oh, if you think about the shape of the um, uh, sub array at Exmouth and what I said that is and what you thought it might oh, so be, this, and you add those spoke. two numbers, two numbers together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm virtually giving it away here. You are. So, what is that like? Twelve. Oh, so close. A hexagram plus a pentagram gives you eleven. Eleven, ah, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Five and six. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, eleven. This, there yeah. you go. That's what, twenty-one. That's ten more. Yeah, well, you, you are, <laughs> he says without, with complete disregard for any sort of mathematics. <laughs> I've doubled the size you are of it. You were halfway, yeah. right? You I've doubled the, the size of it. Come on. Well, yeah. see, this is most people don't know this, but there was 21 ships, but 10 of them sank on the way here. So only 11 arrived. So Oh, there, there you go. <laughs> uh, the, the other ones sailed too close to Exmouth. Um, now, this one I, I definitely wouldn't have got. So we'll see how you go. Um, what is Australia's most populous city, populous city, other than capital cities? Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yep. I'm going to guess just gut feeling, which apparently is not too correct, but <laughs> I'm going to guess... 
I would toss it up between the Gold Coast and Newcastle. And oh, I, I don't. Wow. I don't. Yeah, I don't know which one's bigger though. Oh God. Maybe wow. maybe Newcastle. I don't know. Look, I'm just it, stabbing it, the dark. Winner, win, winner, winner, chicken dinner. And the reason I said, oh wow, was because there was when I was looking into it, it said Greater Newcastle is over four hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, but the Gold Coast was, is bigger than that. Yeah, it said there was some yeah. comparison with how they measured the Gold Coast. And uh, as we always say, is please read the fine fine print. This is a forex bottle top question. Accuracy may not be correct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, they did say new. So it, you nailed it, double nailing. Oh, well done, uh, God. It's, it's, so so technically, so today the Gold Coast is bigger, but the um, bottle top said Newcastle. Yes, it is. And I don't know how old that bottle top was that I had the picture of. Yeah. Um, it it oh. definitely would have been at, at some point, but the Gold Coast has just gone crazy over the last few years. So, Yeah, that's a, that's a really good effort, though. I'm impressed. Cool. Well, on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official subreddit if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics please get in touch with us on the r slash australian subreddit or email us at australian subreddit at proton.me we'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely otherwise join us next week for another episode of australia talks and remember and r slash australian we are australian thanks for listening and tell your mum i love her Thanks, DK. See ya.